KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. As we continue the battle against COVID 19, the main focus these days variants. And as we talk more about variants, you are probably hearing a phrase thrown around genetic surveillance. Well, it is a critical tool when it comes to knowing where you stand with regards to variants, but what exactly is it? How does it work? We wanted to learn all about genetic surveillance, so we reached out to Dr. Zachary Clace. He is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at the Drexel College of Medicine. This is fascinating stuff. Give a listen. To start, just define for me genetic surveillance, what it is. Sure. Genetic surveillance, specific to this, right, to viruses and diseases, means when you have these cases where people are getting sick and you've identified why they're getting sick. You take a deeper dive into that virus and you look at the genetic sequence, like so the genome, right? For for you and me, that's a DNA sequence for this virus, it's an RNA sequence. And rather than just say, yes, it's there, you read every single one of those, you know, 30,000 pieces of code. So you have a picture of exactly what that virus is. What is, and this is useful for determining mutations and variants? Is that the main goal of it? That's the main that's the main public health goal of it, right, is is to be able to track not only the variants you know about, right, because the, the variants you know about, you could maybe do a more very more specific, you know, quicker test and look for it, but to identify new variants and really get, you know, sort of a hands, I don't know, an objective look at like everything that's out there. You know, I sequence 100 of these things, you know, 40% of them are this B117 variant that we hear about, you know, 10% of this other thing. And how does that change over time? Is it simply you're just taking, like if I get a, a COVID test and you are the one working it, you, you know, part A is is COVID present. It, then that just that same test, you're just doing a deeper dive. There's not like a next step for the patient or anything like that. There's not a next step for the patient. This is a, you know, you already have this sample in hand and you've used some of it to do the COVID test. It would be, you know, what do you do with the rest of the, the sample that in a way sort of leads into the problem. You know, there's this, uh, you know, some public health predictions out there. Like if you really want to monitor what's going on, say, you know, let's, let's forget the U.S. It's huge. If you want to just monitor in Pennsylvania, you should be sequencing 5% of all the positive cases. And, you know, you, you do the math. I think PA comes in at about 5,000 new cases a day over the last week or something. So, you know, you need to be sequencing, what, 5%? It's like 250, something like that every day to, to do this. And I guess, you know, the, the problem statement there is you go to your doctor, you get a COVID test, they swab your nose. They send that off to a commercial lab or the state health lab that's doing the testing. And the normal stream for that lab is, well, we take what we need, we tell you if you're COVID positive or not, and then we throw out the rest, right? And because that's not the lab that would be able to be able to do this, you know, genetic surveillance. And there's really no way for like, let's say the public, you know, the, the health department says, well, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll go back, let's sequence that. And they go, well, sorry, it's already, it's already gone. There's a little bit of a disconnect there in getting it done. Yeah, that was kind of my next question, just from reading some articles and and listening to people talk. It sounds like this is not something the US is great at. It sounds like Europe is is much better. Am I being fair there? I you are being completely fair there. I, I kind of anticipated this and went and looked up the numbers. Back in January, we had sequenced 
0.3, so like what, one in 300 of every COVID case that we had in the country. Whereas the UK was at 5%, Denmark was at 12%, and Australia had sequenced over half of their their infections, right? I, I will give some props. We're better. March, we did 1.6%. So that's, that's you know, we're, we're on this upward trend. We're certainly not doing as well as we could be doing when you look around the world. Why is that? Because this is another thing I feel like you just reflexively would think this would be something the U.S. would be, if not leading the way, right at the forefront. What is this just a funding right. thing? Why? Why is this? Well, it's not a funding thing because, like, it, so, it, so it's probably size and politics, right? And I say it's not a funding thing because I know Gambia and Equatorial Guinea have better sequencing coverage than we do. You know, so you can't say, oh, it's a funding issue, right? You know, clearly we've got better funding and, and more labs to do things. It's a little bit of just a logistics problem, right? I, you know, we're a big country. There's lots of discussions going on about, you know, how, how tied in our health system should be. So you don't have an easy way for the CDC to say, look, this is how we're going to do it. You know, in fact, they keep putting out, you know, these sort of initiatives to get people to work together on problems like this. And the latest one was called Sphere. And it was May of last year. But if you look down the list of, you know, they tried to get these big genomic sequencing centers to work together with the states. But if you look at the list of states that are involved, like PA is not involved, New Jersey's not involved, you know, like states that, that I think are doing pretty good in terms of how they're managing COVID didn't choose to sign on. Right. So it's sort of this patchwork problem. And that meant early on in the beginning, the labs that were doing all of the genetic surveillance were, were labs like mine. Now, my lab doesn't do it. Maybe that's a, you know, I could tell you why we don't do it. That's a a roadblock. But even now, it's something like 40% of the genetic testing that's done is done by research labs in universities. And that, that sort of tells you that's like three, four steps removed from the public health, you know, testing lab, right? So there's a lot of steps that have to happen there. Like you have to have the samples stored and transferred to the right people. You need to have some way to transfer the information along with that because states have been traditionally a little hesitant to share monitoring information. I think on a, you know, keeping people's personal information safe side and also on a, we don't want anyone to think that we're messing up side. You need to get all that stuff to the right lab. And then there is money involved, right? Just because a lab has the capability to do it doesn't mean that they have the money to pay for, you know, hundreds of samples a day or whatever it is that they're going to do. But to maybe put that in perspective, I, you know, there's one lab I know out of the University of Washington that has a big virus center that they think their capacity for a week is about a thousand samples. So like, you know, you think you want to do like 23,000 samples per week to get to the 5% you need, you only need 20 labs, right? And there's way more than that, you know? So it, it's really just a logistics disconnect of getting the money and the funding and the samples all into the right place. Uh, and I think, you know, 350 million people across 50 states, it's just a patchwork of different approaches that's not coming together real well. You mentioned it is getting better in the U.S. Is Do you know why it's getting better? Have some of those roadblocks been taken out? People understand how important this is. You're starting to get people working together uh, a little more. Well, I think, you know, you know, I, I know that 0.3% was total up to January, but I bet if you looked back at last July, it was even worse, right? So there's just a, over time, you work some of the kinks out. The arrival of some of the variants that I know you and I talked about the last time we talked, you know, like B117, and then there was a South African variant were sort of the first on the scene. I think that shook people up a little bit like, oh, wait, you know, we really should be looking at this. And then 
the Biden administration, when they came in, sort of said, look, you know, this has to be one of our major things that we're working on and sort of, you know, shunted some money over to try to solve the problem. Going forward to get where we need to be, not just in the middle of COVID-19, but just is it a matter of you mentioned the Biden administration, the federal government grabbing this by the shoulders and saying, all right, this is a priority. Even after we're at past the pandemic, we need to be at a certain level with this. Right. I, I think it's, it's a you know building capabilities question. Right. You know, certainly you would to me, I'd say you have the CDC. Why can't the CDC kind of, you know, quarterback this whole thing? Realistically, it might actually come down to the states. Right. You know, you you put some sort of guideline in place that says, look, as a state, you need to be able to do this and we'll give you some funds. But you have to figure it out. I think it's just a planning logistics issue. I mean, we certainly have the the resources. And by that, I mean, like the equipment and the the expertise you need to do sequencing like that's becoming more and more common in my realm. Right. You know, so like the the capability is out there, I think, to sequence probably every single variant you know, or every single infection we have. It would just be a matter of getting the samples to the people, getting the money to the people. And that's going to take some sort of high level organization. And, you know, to, to your thought there, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to learn from this. Right. Because, sure, we're going to we're going to get over COVID. We're all getting vaccinated. You know, maybe the fall is going to look pretty normal. But it would be great if we could do this with like seasonal flu or the next virus that comes along and not have to wait a year before we get it right. And you mentioned variants in our first discussion a few months ago was about variants. Just kind of on that topic, what's your level of concern? Do you feel like we've got a a handle on that? Uh, Overall, the idea of the the variant situation right now. Sure. I mean, you know, the the surveillance we are doing is letting us track, you know, I have a CDC graph sitting right over here, like, B117 that we talked about last time is about 40% of the infections now, you know, up from, I think when we last talked, like 1%, right? So the prediction that that was going to be more infectious and start to take over, you know, somebody was right there. I think the, you know, the real question in here is like, well, how much do we care, right? And there's multiple reasons why we might care about variants, right? And the first one is just the medical, you know, your health side, like, do they spread faster? Right. And there you want to know over the last year, you know, lockdown became this politically charged sort of thing. But really, you want to think about that as, as grades of decisions. You know, can I have 200 people over or does it have to be 50? Right. Can the restaurant open at 50 percent capacity or 75 percent capacity? You know, you need to make these little decisions. And, you know, if you know that most of the spread in your area is one of the variants that doesn't spread so fast, well, then maybe you can open up a little bit more, right? So you can make those decisions on your daily life. You know, you want to know if the variants that are spreading are going to make people more sick. You know, it looks so far like most of these variants aren't necessarily that much more dangerous, which is great. But you want to know, like, should a doctor make a different decision, right? And some of the variants we're starting to see, it looks like, you know, the monoclonal antibody therapy that is probably the best thing we have available is maybe a little less effective on some of the variants. Like, so you'd like to know that, right, before you make your treatment decisions. And then maybe the big one for, for most people is just, what's it mean for my vaccine? And, you know, I think the, the jury's still out, you know, because we can only really measure in a dish. And we know that, you know, some of these variants are a little less responsive to your antibodies after you get vaccinated, but we don't know what that means, like, for you. Um, and we're going to have to follow that. I think the good thing there is a lot of these vaccine technologies, it wouldn't be hard to change it, right, and make a vaccine that's going to address the variant, especially, 
you know, I think we're waiting now to see whether or not we're going to have to have a COVID booster, you know, in a year or two. Moderna, I know, has already started a trial on a booster that has changes to account for some of the variants, right? So we can start to plan ahead, which is awesome, right? It kind of speaks to what these companies can do, but we're not going to know what booster changes to make unless we do the surveillance in the first place. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.